0: The basic question that has agitated mankind from the beginning of his consciousness, or its consciousness, his and her consciousness, see how politically correct one can be (laughs) when one remembers, Uh, that basic question has been, of course, uh, what is the nature of the larger power behind our existence and at the origins of our existence? That is to say, we've sought some definition of the transcendent, and then sought ways of relating to the transcendent. And that tends to come down to what is commonly called religion, Uh, religions of many, many different varieties. Nika Lally, one of our guests tonight, finds little of value in religion, though she's had experience with religion and with religious people, uh, all of which is recounted in her new book, Nothing, Something to Believe in. The implication there is the best thing to believe in with regard to these ultimate matters is nothing, to believe in the uh, essential correctness of nothingness. Uh, Jason Bayasi would certainly hold a different view. He's a serious Christian, indeed a Methodist pastor, who is also the assistant editor at Christian Century Magazine. His Ph.D. in theology is from Duke, and he has taught at Wheaton College at North Park Theological Seminary at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Uh, Why have you come, and how, since your new book deals with all of that? uh, Let's come directly to that question, Mika. Why and how did you come to essentially
1: take a principled atheist position? Well, I was raised as a nothing. I had parents who had left the religions that they were... Well, my father was raised with Catholicism. My mother comes from a long line of secular Jews. I was actually trying to figure out how many generations back and for me, it's at least four of of thoroughly secular Jews. So I already had a uh, maybe a predisposition toward non-religion. Um, my father was very uh, dismissive of of religion, and actually, what it being, did he say? Uh, he said we were nothing when I asked him, "What are we?" Mm-hmm. And he said it with a very pleasant. Um, Demeanor, it, it wasn't a big deal to my parents. Um, religion was, you know, it was the 70s when I was growing up, but people didn't really seem to be that into it, you know, in their, in their milieu But here. you were
0: bugged by the fact that among your uh, circle of uh, friends when you were six or seven or eight-year-old were uh, w- girls who were uh, Methodist, Catholic, Jewish, Etc.
1: Well, yes. I mean, um, telling a child uh, that they're nothing mm-hmm. uh, can be a little bit frightening, um, especially because, you know, when you have a, a, a kid and you, they've done something wrong, uh, you say, instead of dessert, you're getting nothing. So nothing already has sort of, you know, a negative connotation as a child. Um, and my parents just didn't really give me a lot of information about what non belief meant. They just kind of said we're nothing and went, you know, next, you know. It wasn't a big deal. I uh, was very uncomfortable with that term at that time. Uh, and I struggled with what it meant and how it could be. And I was kind of frightened by it. Um, but the book really traces from my early childhood up until my pre- more present day when I've really come to you, you be more to comfortable em- You with came it. to embrace nothing. I did. I, 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 a long, long thought process went into the uh, idea that actually nothing could really actually be something. And people confuse Mm -hmm. it all the time that I don't believe in anything. People say, I could never say that I believe in nothing. Well, I don't say I believe in nothing. I just don't belong to a religion or to... and so, uh, therefore, I feel like that makes me nothing.
0: Well, before I I turn to our other guest, let me put a very direct question. Um, Does the concept of a Godhead of some transcendent being or transcendent entity or force uh, eternally existent and somehow related to our lives. Does that seem to you a plausible hypothesis which might be entertained, quite apart from what doctrine specifies uh, in one or another brand of Christianity or Judaism or in Islam or wherever?
1: No. I mean, to, to simply say, just simply state it, no, I don't... I the don't,
0: God concept you find easy to totally reject.
1: Well, I don't think it's easy to totally reject anything. I, I liked uh, Richard Dawkins saying that he was 99.9% sure that there couldn't be a God. Mm-hmm. I would never say that I'm sh- 100% sure of anything, I, I, I don't think, really. I'm glad you so mentioned... So I, I just, I, to me, for me, it just doesn't, that concept just doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, I'm very glad you mentioned Dawkins, because one might well note that this new book of yours, which is uh, a further defense of, or at least an explanation of an atheist orientation to these matters. Uh, this comes uh, uh, in line with a number of other recently published volumes, and Dawkins is a leading apostle of nothingness. so to speak. Not of nothingness, he's a great apostle of evolution and of science, but he's a great apostle of the atheist rejection of any interest in or acceptance of religion. And the same can be said, certainly, of Sam Harris and of Daniel Dennett, who was on this program, as Dawkins has been, but talking Mm -hmm. about evolution rather than religion. Uh, And Christopher Hitchens, an old friend, has recently done yet another major atheist tract with the usual uh, attractive bombastic quality that uh, tends to mark his writing. So now we add this one to that list. Uh, And... Jason Biassi, you've read uh, Nika's volume. What's your immediate reaction to it?
2: I'm impressed by how different it is from the books that you just mentioned, and that each of those books is quite angry. Each of them uh, is a screed of sorts. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that Dawkins could say 99.99% because when he's speaking... With that 99%, he's incredibly dismissive of any sort of religious belief in a violent way because he thinks it's done great harm and uh, caused enormous suffering and would be much better wiped out, and he won't miss it for a second. Um, I think of Christopher Hitchens when Jerry Falwell died, saying, it's a pity there's no hell for him to go to. This is the kind of uh, manner of these books you mentioned.
0: I must tell you, one memorable night on this program, uh, the two guests were uh, Jerry Falwell How about that? the man who was then the editor of the magazine you work for, uh, namely Jim Wall, and they had a wonderful debate.
2: They're the Christians
0: of a very different variety, but they, and they had much to disagree upon.
2: And Nicola Lee's book is different. I mean, for one, it's much more of a personal memoir. Um, it doesn't have the seething um, level of uh, fury and anger at religious believers as such. In fact, I'd characterize her book as a kind of flirtation with religion. There's this kind of step toward some sort of religious belief and then step back away from it that continues throughout the book. That's what makes it appealing is, is, is a sort of posture of wonder about religious faith. That continues throughout it um so i I actually wonder whether the book is mistitled Mm. for precisely the reason Mm, that you mentioned um and you'll often speak of having a great deal of faith in belief in um, community needing to be improved in your love for your family Mm. and friends Um, in other words i hear nothing Mm. and i think of Mm. nihilism right which is what the word nihil means um, and you're not at all a nihilist. There's a kind of uh, humanism uh, that's 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 deeply present throughout your words in this book. And interestingly, Nika's
0: an book is published by Prometheus Press, and the founder and publisher at Prometheus is um, a man who uh, has had a long, well, he is in fact sort of the the prince of American secular humanism. Uh, and uh, he argues, the atheist position persistently, in the various publications he puts out, thus your thing would have been very welcome. Uh, yeah, I, I feel lucky that, that I found people.
1: Prometheus. Yeah, very lucky, and they—they've been a wonderful group of people to work with. As have their um, sort of their sister organization, uh, Center for Inquiry.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how do we deal with with this? The basic question is: do, Would you agree, Jason, that in, in this kind of discussion, one should really to begin with the basic question of, is there God? Rather than with the specifics of one or another creed and one or another great religious narrative.
2: I have a great interest in the specifics. And so I think one interesting question about Nika's book is what sort of God does she imagine she's not believing in? (laughs) Um, So uh, what kinds of things is God called upon to do or not do? What kinds of specific disappointments does she have? and often in, in your story, you'll mention some sort of bargain you've made with God, especially as a young child, um, that in which God failed to uphold God's end of the bargain, or some sort of uh, uh, harmful thing that happened to you slamming your finger in the door and feeling like, well, God must be punishing me and so on. Um, And if that's what we mean by God, one who either keeps bargains or doesn't, one who zaps people who don't deserve it and so on, then it is a kind of childish view of God that I'd like to have dismissed. Most mature believers I know in most faiths don't hold that view of God either. So that's Mm -hmm. one that I'm a view of God I'm happy to see slain. Um, So I, I, I think that's an important question to address.
0: Before Nika answers your question, let me ask you to answer it yourself. What is your conception of God? Sure. have um, state your conception in a way that would include uh, the representations of God that you get in other, at least in, say, the Abrahamic religions. Sure. Uh,
2: my own also begins with particularity. So it's the God incarnated in Jesus and poured out on the Spirit, uh, by the Spirit on the Church. So it's the triune God of Christian confession who differs in important ways from the other abrahamic faiths but the striking similarity in the abrahamic faiths is they each hold to a god who acts in history to bring about salvation for those who are oppressed um and uh for whom uh religious texts are quite important in the worship of a of a gathered people um within those broad similarities uh i I do very much like to focus on the distinctives as well
0: nika how does that grab you brother why would you reject that instantly
1: well I'm going to quote one of my favorite TV shows because I do love TV. And that would be The West Wing when uh, President Jed Bartlett is really, really angry with God because his beloved secretary has been taken out in a car accident. And he closes the doors of the church and he smokes a cigarette, he stamps it out and he says that God is a feckless thug. And I have a really hard time with this wrathful kind of... And I, I do think that there's a punishing quality that, at least that I pick up. And, you know, I am no theologian. I'm not a studious, you know, person in that way. But I just, that's that, I always think of that when I think about this concept. And then I also, I think where I'm more comfortable, and this is where I think people start to say, oh, maybe she's an agnostic, um, but I do a sort of, I do like to wonder about this idea of something that is so big, you know, that you can't really conceive of it. Now, um, Victor Stenger, another person that we need to add to our list of books, Mm -hmm. uh, of atheist books, who wrote um, The God Hypothesis, said to me on last Saturday, if God is so big, why is there no real evidence that he exists? and and so you know you can start to get caught up in that eddy, but but I really you know I just I just don't get the idea of the guy in the sky.
0: You know, uh, I could can't help but tell you this, as you began talking about um, how badly God behaves, and therefore that's no that's not the kind of God you would want to conceive. I remembered a wonderful anecdote. Evelyn Waugh tells Randolph Churchill, the son of Winston that, um, you know, Randolph, you should really read the Bible. Have you ever? And he says, no, I never have, in point of fact. He says, well, do read it, and then let's discuss it. And Randolph does read the Bible, and when Waugh next next asks, asks him, uh, did you read the Bible? He says, yes, God is really a dreadful bastard, isn't he? <laughs> says Randolph Churchill, and I'm editing. He used another <laughs> word, but, I, but this is for public radio, this is for family radio. Uh, that is a great issue in theology, is it not? It has a name.
2: Sure, absolutely. Theodicy is the name we yeah. give to the study of the question of of if God is all good and all powerful, why do bad things happen? My fear about that study is it's a description of God without any reference to any specificity, as I say before. So I don't know why bad things happen to good people. As a Christian I can say the worst of things happened to Jesus. And that gives me a way to understand the mystery of suffering to some degree, but not in a way that would say, Oh, whoever suffered God has has poured out.
0: Do you remember wrath. the answer that the mm-hmm. rabbi who wrote the book titled why do bad things happen to good people, the answer he gave to his own question? I don't. It is not the answer you would give as a Christian. His answer was because God isn't all-powerful. God wishes it were otherwise, but he has limits to his power
2: sure St. Augustine who uh, is the Christian theologian I've spent the most time reading for him an important category is nothing Mm -hmm. in fact he understands evil to be no thing an absence a lack an absurdity something that makes no sense what I love about that with Augustine is it allows you to rail at injustice precisely in the way you say from the TV show um, and, and not pretend oh this is God's will or everything is fine no the psalmist the prophets the scriptures scream about injustice and say God why aren't you doing something about this So I often think your posture of saying, look at all the evil and suffering, and and how can this stand? That's actually a a fairly religious posture, if you're Mm. thinking with uh, the Jewish and Christian scriptures.
0: And it's the basic question in what is in some ways the most challenging and disturbing book of the Old Testament, namely the book of Job. Right. But it comes up with a a far too pat answer. Mm. After all that God has made Job suffer, though he's a good man, and he's taken everything away from him, he's killed all of his family, killed all of his... Uh, all of his crops, all of his cows or sheep or whatever, and, uh, and given him boils and other afflictions, and Job protests, mm-hmm. but he it doesn't know so much protest. He says he will accept it because right. God is wishing this upon him, though he doesn't know why. And then ultimately, God pays him off.
2: Right, it's by supposed, restoring him. It spoils the story, which at is the a end. great letdown, isn't That's it? That's right. The part at the end of Job that I like best is God from the whirlwind saying, "Have you ever seen a crocodile?" Uh, what do you mean by that, God? And and it's a kind of uh, there's a space there for mystery that says mm-hmm. um, God is God in a way we can't understand. Um, uh, I, I like that part of the end of Job better than the sort of restoration. I agree bit.
0: with you completely. Yeah. Uh, and you've got the Jobian concern.
1: Well, you a, know,
0: a decent God and a real God would not allow this this much evil in life and in the world.
1: Yes. And you know, then I hear people tell me that they're really blessed because they had good weather on their vacation. Mm-hmm. And I just think, and I said this uh, when I spoke to Kathleen Falsani uh, last week, I said, "Please tell me that God has something better to do than worry about whether you got sunshine or rain. and And she said, "Well, God is supposed to, you know, be big enough. I think it was she who said that. Mm-hmm. Um, big enough to take care of so many things, you know, that it is this enormous, you know being. Um, but the word that, that Jason said that I actually like the best um, in his description of Job um, is mystery. And, um, you know, I I, I like mystery uh, in my life. I like not knowing. Um, so in that, you know, point oh oh one percent that Dawkins is talking about, uh, I'm comfortable there. I'm very comfortable. Um, I mean let me just be clear and that's i i was called a, i was called an agnostic tonight which i really take no offense to because people can call me well. they call me lots of things um but i you know i don't have to have all the answers so if people say well why is why is it this way or why are you here why are, why do we exist i say you know
0: but oh, well, i do have to have all the answers because i'm a talk show host i see uh, and that's the ultimate uh, role when it comes to uh, justifying and explaining all that puzzles ordinary people. And our guests tonight are Jason Biasi and Nika Lali. Jason Biasi is assistant editor at Christian Century Magazine uh, and is uh, an unordained Methodist minister with very good credentials, including, of course, a PhD in theology. Uh, Nika Lally is the author of the new book, Nothing, Something to Believe in. She is also an art educator Uh, who works, I believe, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York and lives in Brooklyn, my old home ground. Um, And I promised you um, the ultimate proof, or at least the ultimate consideration, which makes religion uh, reasonable and necessary in human existence. And there's a question, a question to which there is no answer, except somehow moving towards the concept of some transcendent Force beyond our comprehension. I'm speaking not as a committed religionist of a particular tradition. I'm Jewish by background and by identity, obviously, but I'm not... What I'm about to say isn't Judaism, nor surely is it Christianity, because it isn't specific enough. The narrative isn't any of the great narratives, uh, nor is it the Islamic narrative, or even the Buddhist or the Hindu narrative. But it's a simple, eternal question. Regular listeners have heard me raise it often. It was first raised in this form by Spinoza, a great deviant Jewish or post-Judaic philosopher. It was given a modern formulation by Heidegger, uh, and it's simply the question, why is there anything rather than nothing? And then, interestingly, your book is titled <laughs> Nothing. But nothing, thats true nothing, would be nothing. There would be no matter, no space. Uh, but in fact, we live in an abundant universe which contains a hundred billion galaxies, on the average, each of them has about a hundred billion stars, Mm. and it may just be one of a number of galaxies, possibly, though the concept itself overwhelms you, an infinity of galaxies, according to some recent developments in cosmological theory. Uh, What I'm doing is pointing to the issue of origin, Uh, and to account for there being anything rather than nothing is beyond our capacity beyond probably the nature of our brains, but it points us in the direction which I think eternally has stirred religious sentiment, religious ideation, and ultimately the elaboration of religious faiths. End of lecture. What do you say?
1: Well, as an art educator, I've had to study a lot of different um, societies and cultures, and I'm fascinated. By the fact that, well, first of all, when you walk through a museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, you see you, you see religion coming out of so many different places, different ways, and yet there are so many similarities: um, ancestor worship, you know, uh, animal worship, um, and then the concept of a life after death runs through so many. Um, and so I, I understand that there's a human sort of a need to believe, and I know I, I know there was an article in The New York Times about that. Why do we believe? Um, but you know when when you talk about about the concept of of nothing, to me, the way I view what what I call nothing, because obviously, as you've pointed out, there's a lot of thing. we have a lot of things, um, it, it kind of flips back out onto itself and becomes kind of everything. So, I mean, you know, but...
0: Okay, but why is there everything rather than nothing?
1: Uh, because there was this oozy goo and then things started to come out of it. <laughs> cells, I guess, and oh, the oozy more goo. cells that's and a more cells.
0: That's a reference only to the beginning of organic evolution
2: on this one planet.
1: Before. Ah, you're talking about the cosmos. <laughs> <We're
2: talking laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't know, I'm going to turn to Jason. Jason.
2: We spoke earlier about uh, proofs, and Nicola Lele was saying, um, it, why, if God exists, is there so little evidence? And I love a quote from the current Pope, Benedict XVI, who said, the only two quote proofs for Christianity's truth is the holiness of its saints and the beauty of its art. That's the kind of proof I think is 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 lovely because it doesn't prove anything. No, it doesn't. Prove um, it's a at all. kind of hint at something just beyond what we can imagine. The proof I like from Christian history is another sort of non-proof proof. It's from Saint Anselm, who talked about God being that than which greater cannot be thought, and as soon as you grant that definition of God, God must exist because a God that doesn't exist ain't that great. Um, now it's not that hard to unpro- to disprove that definition. What I like about Anselm's work is he wraps it in a context of prayer, and so it's an activity for him of faith-seeking understanding, not something that's supposed to turn mm-hmm. you from an atheist to a theist, but a Christian believer in a context of prayer talking about the God he wonders about.
0: But of course, it must instantly be acknowledged, and this is surely on Nico's side of the argument, that beyond those considerations, when it comes to the specifics, the narratives of any religion, um, there's every reason to be doubtful. I would say there's reason to be doubtful, you would certainly disagree, with, uh, of the Christian narrative. The studies of the historical Jesus that have been flourishing for years right. have tended to de-Christianize some of the scholars who've gone after it. And similarly, uh, was there an historical Moses? Possibly, but he's, uh, did God really appear to him on Mount Sinai and give him the Ten Commandments? And uh, et cetera, et cetera. We all know the, the Old Testament narrative. No, I can't believe that that's true. I can't believe uh, similarly that uh, the angel Gabriel squeezed uh, Muhammad once in a cave uh, a number of years ago in the 6th or 7th century, uh, as we reckon things, and suddenly the whole Quran Quran was revealed. Mm. That's just about as impossible as the golden tablets of Joseph Smith. Uh, (laughs) So in these matters, I guess I would stand with Nika.
1: Well, you know... um, in Christopher Hitchens' book, which has the tasty title, you know, "God is Not Great: Why Religion Poisons Everything,", everything. Um, he everything, <laughs> everything and <laughs> believe me, he will list it all. Um, he um, uh, he says that religion is man-made, and that 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 mm-hmm. is the explanation yeah. that must stand.
0: Well, it's man-made, um, but it's man-made eternally in all societies as yes. a reflection of or as a response to issues that arise in all human societies.
1: That's true. But also, so many religions are so ancient and are revered for being ancient, but now we have so much other information mm-hmm. um, that you do have to wonder, um, okay, well, and, I mean, let's go here, but Adam, and, the story of Adam and Eve is a story. It's not meant to be a factual telling of how the world well, began. Well, I imagine
0: you could be a good Christian and even a serious theologian and accept that it has symbolic or mythic quality rather than uh, the particularity of exactly uh, and totally inerrant scripture.
2: Right. Um, This is an an enormously complex question, as you know. Um, I I like to use my teacher at Duke Stanley Hauerwas' distinction between a Catholic and a Protestant approach to questions of history. Um, He says liberal Protestants like to say, what's the very least amount of this stuff I can get away with believing? Give me the very least. The resurrection, Adam and Eve, um, Jesus actually Mm -hmm. existing. What's the very least? Whereas he says a Catholic approach is to say, wow, look at all this great stuff I get to believe. (laughs) In other words, not boiling it down to the very least uh, thing. One of the things I enjoyed about Nika's book is that she and I share a love for the uh, Narnia series by C.S. Lewis and share a love for Star Wars, as everyone (laughs) in our generation does. And I'm interested in in these mythical stories and how powerful they are. Um, And it's part of the reason I tend to side with orthodox biblical interpreters Um, not fundamentalist at all, but ones like Luke Johnson and N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes, who tend to lean toward uh, arguing in some defense of historicity with regard to the New Testament, um, even to the point of defending Jesus' resurrection. The New
0: Testament, but not the Old.
2: Well, and on the Old Testament, I think you have to go question by question. I mean, if Moses didn't exist, you'd have to invent him, right? I mean, you had uh, Hebrews who were slaves in Egypt and uh, something happened, you know. So I think each question needs to be negotiated.
0: And once again, our guests tonight are Nika Lally, who is the author of the new book, Nothing, Colon, Something to Believe in, and Jason Biassi, who is assistant editor at Christian Century Magazine. That's a mainline Christian journal uh, that's been established for a long, long time. I think they recently celebrated their 100th anniversary, didn't they? Or a uh, while ago.
2: It's been a little while now. Yeah.
0: And uh, that is published from Chicago, in fact. And uh, The assignment I gave you, if you choose to accept it, is uh, give me really the defense of your faith.
2: We've already appealed to the concept of mystery, and you'll hear it again. If I need to talk about my faith, the first thing I want to talk about is Jesus. And if I want to present my faith to others, the first stories I want to tell are about Jesus, loving his enemies, loving the poor, um, teaching in ways that religious leaders found... um, Difficult, uh, but that ordinary people found wonderful um, and finally giving his life for others and we believe rising from the dead And so I, I tend not to reach for sort of grand theories or proofs But rather for stories of a particular life mm-hmm. to find appealing and who Christians are are the people who? Uh, think this man is Lord and wish to follow him with their lives um, there's been a kind of effort to uh, look to the probative power of beauty, um, rather than a sort of set of uh, historical proofs, to say this is what this is the, the most glorious story that can be told, and so that's the direction I go in to present my faith. It's about Jesus.
0: The most glorious story that can be told,
2: therefore, it's true. That's the best I can do for you. Now, of course, that's enormously wide open. What's glorious? You can't prove or argue taste can you um all you can do is tell the story and lo and behold sometimes people are attracted to it and change their lives do extraordinary things i think one difference between nika's life and my life is the people who've been uh the most holy the most uh appealing. The most the people I most wanted to be like in my life were Christians. So I didn't grow up in a very committed Christian household. Mine was more of a conversion. Yours is more of a lifelong story. Um, but it was because I was surrounded by people who looked, acted like Jesus, and I wanted to do the same. What is your story?
0: Uh, you came to this. You, you didn't start with a strong religious upbringing, is that what you're saying?
2: I had parents who were sort of non-observant Baptists and non-observant Methodists, mm-hmm. um, and people who bear no ill will toward religion. Um, my father's still living, my mother's not, and he's become more uh, kindly disposed as I've gone into ministry and so on. Um, but I was only ever occasionally dragged to church, mostly by my mom, similar, uh, although your mom wouldn't have done any dragging, would no. she And it was an evangelical camp uh, where the Christians weren't as freaky as your ski camp um, that I went to. And it was a kind of love that they displayed that I found convincing and not at all phony, um, but the kind of love I wanted to be part of. Uh, And so I traced my conversion to being at basically a Baptist camp.
1: Well, you know, you said the word truth, and I have to ask you, is that with a capital T or a small
2: t? The only capital T, I think, truth that Christians have is an incarnate Jew. It's not actually a religion of the written word first, that would be Islam. It's actually a religion of uh, an enfleshed God. And so it's a kind of truth that's always just beyond us and is elusive. So it's not a truth that the church has as its possession. It's rather a truth the church is in pursuit of. Mm -hmm. I think the mistake is when the church starts to think it's its own Lord, as opposed to being a group of disciples and followers of one whom we can't claim to understand fully.
1: Okay, because I, I like to make that distinction, um, because I I think that that there are a lot of Christians who think that they need the answers, they can get the answers, mm-hmm. and then they can live their life within these parameters, right. and they can use their religion to sort of uh keep a lot of other things out you know and then um and then they throw around these words like truth grace faith um and i always capitalize them whereas uh you know for them right. because they, they that's how i think they think is that it's the capital t it's the capital g in grace whereas i feel like those words work other places too and i tried to t- in some ways and and i've taken some flack for this, but. You know, I think that grace is a great thing for all of us to have, uh, but I might put it with a small G. Oh. You know, and 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 but and, and so and the the other thing is that. What's really funny about me, and I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I should really say that's crazy what he's saying. There is no way, and all these kind of you know, and I'm thinking, boy, if Christopher Hitchens were here, man, he he'd would be just doing that. Rip, rip, <laughs> rip, and that that would be um, interesting <laughs> to see, but. Um, my reaction is that if Jason feels good about what he is doing and how he is living his life, two thoughts. Good, because really I think we all want to be, you know, happy and fulfilled and whatever path you take to that Mm. is great. And then the other thing is, um, um, the other thing is, uh, you know, it's what you do is what you do. And what I do is what I do now. Where it starts to get really tricky is um, when everybody is telling the other side that they're wrong, that they're that they're foolish, that they're making a big mistake, that they're perpetuating evil. You've had
0: some of that traumatization in your own life, haven't you?
1: Yes, and I don't. And like your book it. has a
0: good deal of that. I
1: don't like to be told I'm wrong. Who told you that? Well, my in-laws told me that because they're um, they're Christians, um, but I don't. I don't know if they're, I mean, the truth is I don't know that much about their Christianity because we don't really talk about it well, that much. Well, they sound like evangelicals. Because, well, when somebody tells you you're wrong, do you really want to go any further in the conversation? Sure. Like, Well, you, yeah, well, you're a radio talk show host. <laughs>
0: I'm also a, an academic, and yes, it seems well, to me that the whole nature of academic discourse is argumentative.
1: Well, you're, that's maybe true, but I'm. I would prefer that we talk without the name calling. Mm. And I, when I say we, I don't mean me and my family. Mm-hmm. I mean the country. Because, I mean, look, I enjoy reading all these atheist books that are out there right now. I, I think they're great to read. And I think that everybody um, should read at least one of them. You know? Um, and and I've read, I think I've read most of them now. But And I'm glad that those voices are being heard. Mm. Because really, I feel that in this country, and especially in the last decade, well, the last six years, we as non-believers have been um a silent minority and we've felt i've felt i'm going to speak for me um really like kind of angry that the country has taken this turn and that we're we're just supposed to sit there as every politician you know claims that they're christian and that they're mormon and that they're faithful and that they go to church or temple i mean it just I don't know, at a certain point, I just think, all mm. right already, you know, And then you've got the people who want to um, really make our country into more of a theocracy, which I, I frankly feel would be just be a total disaster. So I you know, um, I think that these books are important, and I'm proud to be uh, on the bookshelf with them. But after all the acrimony has been, you know, brought out, then what? What's going to happen next?
0: You know, I think your view is partly energized by the contemporary American liberal distaste for so-called um, uh, radical right religion or radical Christianity, and a sense that somehow it's taken over the country and it's personified by our president, I take, uh, who has, uh, all of whose bad decisions, in quotes, uh, are, are due ultimately to his unexamined uh, Fundamentalist Christianity. I think that, frankly, that that is a view which is pushed a lot by the leftist press and by the liberal press and even by the great New York Times, uh, but simply isn't in accord with reality and Mm -hmm. is a terrible oversimplification and gets American Christianity wrong as well as gets the basic issues of American public life wrong. In other words, I disagree with you. Ah, there you go. But I think you are brought to your atheist position and to your great affection for these books and to. Uh, Dawkins' assertion that uh, religion does nothing and and Hitchin's assertion that religion does nothing but evil. I think you're brought to that from that political stance. Am I right?
1: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I I have been increasingly frustrated by what I see as a shift toward radical, you know, sort of extremism in our own country. Um, And I do, but I do feel more i think more importantly that the voices of the non-believers until you know dennett
2: mm-hmm. i think
1: was really the first one i mean prometheus has been trying to get the voices out there since 1969 there's no question prometheus that. books your prometheus publishing. books yeah. yes but um mainstream you know bestseller you know talked about on the radio and on Jon Stewart show and you know in the morning tv news tv shows uh no and you know on this just show. well
0: this show of course. <laughs> two hours with but it, with you them.
1: know after 911 which was truly the worst day of my life and as a new yorker i can tell you it was bleak um, every there was a turn toward you know, I mean, Rudolph Giuliani, you know, said, God has a plan. This is all part of God's plan. Well, you know, frankly, that just really made me angry. Because now we're getting back to this, this thuggish God who, uh, you know, was in control of this situation. Uh, so why didn't he stop it? You know, I, what plan could include, you know, that many funerals that I had to watch on TV? for? You have, have persuaded to, but, you me
0: know. that you are indeed a truly authentic East Coast person. Um, secularist, (laughs) of Uh, leftist liberal persuasion, which is a fine thing to be.
1: I Uh, live in in, Park Slope, Brooklyn. You know, you have to take a test to get in there. In our
0: Father's house are many mansions. I was threatening that I would give you yet another, if not justification, at least explanation for the universality and the persistence of religion. And it is simply this hypothesis, which I think is strongly confirmed by historical materials and by sociological observation, that those societies which... Uh, abandon religion, tend to also abandon social cohesion and social order. It may very well be that secular humanists in this country can argue that we can live on the basis of a common morality, which we've elaborated because we know that it coincides with human requirements Mm -hmm. and with human will and with human, uh, uh, human capacity. But in fact, historically, those societies that are not bound by a central faith, by to use Durkheim's representation. Durkheim, a famous sociologist who wrote a book about the origins of religion, those who are not bound by what he calls collective representations, which represent not only their values, but stories that confirm and, rep- and, and, um, and, um, and reinforce those values, ultimately come apart. There's a great book written by a German, Oswald Spengler, uh, a long, long time ago, when the 20th century was young. Der Untergang des Albenlandes, The Decline of the West, in which he argues that the sign of the decline of the West and the coming source of the decline of the West is the decay of, essentially, Western Christianity. Hmm. And with all of that in mind, I will give you one of my rare poetic readings. Matthew Arnold uh, Hmm. from Dover Beach, the last two verses. The Sea of Faith. Remember, Arnold is talking about the beginning of the disorder and decline of Western civilization itself. He may be right, he may be wrong, but he perceives it towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round Earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear, and naked shingles of the world ah love let us be true to one another for the world which seems to be which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams so various so beautiful so new hath really neither joy nor love nor light nor certitude nor peace nor help for pain and we are here as on a darkling plain swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight where ignorant armies clash by night it's a very prophetic poem, Yes, and I think it bears upon the question of the role of religion. I would say that um, people like Dawkins and Hitchens, both of whom I know and or have had here and have enjoyed, are terribly wrong in that they don't recognize the social cohesive nature or function of religion, which has no bearing upon whether religion is true. <laughs> I would not use that.
1: And a lot uh, of people I know go to church for the... Social yes contact, but yes. I have lots of social contact. No, I'm not just about social contact no, but I think the sense that, of friendship. I'm but it's I'm a cohesion. A I understand what you... holding
0: together, as ours, by the way, is not doing particularly well, well. It's an extraordinary no.
2: statement no. that Sam Harris has, and I think he's thinking of the Muslim riots after the cartoons in Denmark, where he asks, when was the last atheist riot? And I immediately think... French Revolution, Soviet Revolution, Chinese Cultural Revolution, there's been an enormous amount of bloodshed in the name of irreligion. No, but
1: I think that's and, a misconception. I really do. I uh-huh. think that, you know, when there's a despot, when there's somebody who's evil, um, who doesn't believe, it's e- immediately, well, they're an atheist. But there have been plenty of evil oh, sure. doers with oh, no lots of religion behind them. Oh, no them question.
2: Too. No, I would completely agree that, uh, and, and it's a kind of. I don't really of, it's think a kind that of...
1: was in the name of non belief. I think that that was in the name right. of. Right you know evil,
2: evil well sure and i i don't use it to score points what i do use it to is often in the rhetoric the other atheist writers speak as though all evil has come from religion all good has come from irreligion and it's a kind of rhetoric religion poisons everything well christopher hitchens if i can name you one thing then i win the argument right um So uh, in terms of cohesion, I I think of John Calvin saying the human heart is a veritable factory of idols, and I think what he was getting at is that human beings are worshipping creatures, and if there's a kind of absence where there should be something worshipped, something will fill it in. Um, There's no inability to worship, in other words, and often that can be filled in by horrible things um now at the same time the social cohesion argument can be used by conservatives to try and sort of reinstantiate their version of what everyone should believe religion wise which is something i would also not support uh and would want to say look if it's false then you shouldn't follow it even if it happens to tie society together right so
1: so you would be in great support of a separation of church and state.
2: Right. My own teacher, Stanley Howas, is a kind of uh, visionary for the church recognizing its distinction from the state. So he'd be every bit as opposed to the kind of nationalist trappings of religion that you're also opposed to, though, for different reasons. So uh, uh, for kind of the civil religion that pops up at baseball games and in churches with pledges and flags and so on, it's something he thinks corrupts Christianity. You're Mm -hmm. saying it corrupts the state. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting (laughs) kind of uh, difference, but similarity.
1: Yeah, well, I'm just tired of everybody assuming that everybody in the room is Christian. I mean, I think you can make that assumption if you're now, if you're, you know, in a church. Right. But when you're not, I think um, I'm just I'm just tired of that assumption.
0: You've had a hard time with your family, well. <laughs> or, r- <laughs> rather with your in-laws, and, and that uh, is highly featured in your most readable and interesting book. But uh, uh, why don't you forgive them? <laughs>
1: oh, I have. I totally have. I mean, look, and here's the thing. you? I think they're working on it. Right. Um, here's the thing. Um, in order to really forgive, you have to understand. In order to really understand, you have to dialogue. In order to really dialogue, you have to drop trying to convince the other side that you're right, more right, that you have all the answers. And you have to just talk. And that has been something that has not mm. really... To, to my satisfaction, and I don't think to theirs either, happened. So the misconceptions about what we are, who we are, what we believe in, what we do, how we lead our lives, are getting bigger and bigger. And the reason I even included anything about my in-laws, which, by the way, if anybody out there is thinking of writing a memoir, I highly recommend you think very carefully about doing that, <laughs> uh, because it's not easy. Um, but, you know, I think that it mirrors a larger problem, a larger situation in our country. And um, and that's why I included it. Because when I looked at what was going on in my own family and I looked at what was going on in the country, I said, oh
2: what 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 about this parallel can i ask you about something this is at the end of one of your fights in the book where you're screaming with your sister in law accept me for who i am tell me you won't try and change me convert me or convince me anymore i demanded tell me that i am as right in my beliefs as you are in yours Say that I have every right to believe as I please, and then a little further down. And she doesn't, of course. There we are, me with my open mind and them with their absolutism. And that's one place where I wonder if there's a danger of a kind of intolerant tolerance.
1: Yes, and um, actually I read that recently, and I thought, why did I say hmm. open mind? I don't I, – that's a really weird thing that I wrote. Huh, <laughs> huh. Because, um, you know, we all think we have open minds. Right. But we really – very few of us do. And, I mean, I am open-minded. And but my my uh, feeling of open-mindedness uh, has to do with you believe whatever you want to believe, you believe it. That, to right. me is open-mindedness. Right. you know, right. but I understand that that um, that means a little something different. but, it, but I, I did want to contrast. You know, my like live and let live, hey man, whatever works for you. And they're right. like, no,
2: there is one truth. Sure. Now, the contrast is clear. It's But I, but I do think you, you can grant that their evangelical Christian belief holds that they do need to try and convince other people. Yeah, but that's, and then that's, that's we got it, we got it, right. right we got to do something. There's a danger there.
0: And quickly back to the phones for your questions and comments to Nika Lally and Jason Biasi. 591 7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening.
3: Good evening. Uh, Related to the previous comment that there was no proof for the existence of God, uh, Fred Hoyle, a well-known astronomer and former atheist, when looking at the probability of one cell coming into existence by chance, calculated with a another uh, mathematician, that chance of coming into existence existence was like one chance in 10 to the 40 thousands, which is a number beyond imagination. Uh, He concluded, and I quote a sentence here from Fred Hoyle, that uh, it must have been by the hand of an eternally existing being of infinite power, which if you desire you may call God." Now, that's from a former atheist, certainly not an orthodox Christian or orthodox uh, religionist of perhaps any kind, but uh, hmm. certainly recognizing that his atheism was well-challenged just by the statistics of uh, life coming into existence.
0: I've been conducting an informal survey for many, many years uh, with astrophysicists and cosmologists whom I love to have on this program. It's a subject, it's an area of inquiry that fascinates me as a layman. And uh, I usually get around towards the end of a program on uh, subjects of that sort to asking the astrophysicists and cosmologists uh, something about uh, their own religious belief. Uh, It runs around 2 to 1. 2 or 2.5 Will say, um, uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm not religious. I'm not interested in those things. We've got enough large problems to think about, and whatever happens beyond the big bang, or now they would say beyond uh, the formation of the universe out of its prior bubble, uh, that's where time begins for us. And so, I can't handle questions of ultimate origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, about one out of three, will say, I find some sort of God concept. A required hypothesis, just as Einstein said he did.
2: How interesting. Um, I wonder if that number, one out of three, is higher than, say, professionals in literature departments or in, or in humanities. Is. I think it's probably yeah. a lot higher in the hard sciences.
1: Well, I, I would defer to my colleague at Prometheus Books, Victor Stenger, to answer that. Mm-hmm. So you might have to have him on the on the show for that, because uh, that that question is. Uh, that comment is very interesting, and I have I have no idea. <laughs> we have a quote in
2: an upcoming issue of Christian Century um, from a man, and I'm not remembering his name. He teaches at Jewish Theological Seminary who approached a uh, scientist as an undergraduate and asked him, was the Big Bang loud? And scientist was taken aback and said, Uh, no, there was nothing there to hear it. <laughs> and then he realized that the kid was religious and said, You get it. That's poetic language. That's a kind of there's a kind of religiosity about that language that's inescapable when you're talking about human origins at any level.
0: Sir, we thank you for the call. And we'll go directly to another on five nine one seventy two hundred. You are on the air. Good evening. Are you there? Oh yeah. Uh,
4: I didn't realize. No, nobody gave me a single that I was going to be on. So
0: the producer is supposed to do that, but uh,
4: <laughs> she apparently did not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I wanted to say was <clears throat> uh, the uh, I love these shows uh, on God. I've, I've been it's a topic that I've been interested in for quite some time, and uh, and uh, I'm fascinated by. It. I think a lot about it. Uh, the the point I wanted to make though was in in invariably when this is discussed, no one. Comes up with an adequate uh, definition of exactly what God is, and by that I mean what exactly are we talking about? What exactly is God? What is God made of? What is what what what's a nature? What's the the nature of God? Now, the great philosophers, uh, Aquinas, all were good at saying what God is not, right? But very few of them had a, 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 a definition. Up, I'm an atheist. Um, uh, so, but but the other point I wanted to make was, uh, the an allusion was made to the necessity of having faith, not to believe, which I find is is always uh, a, a fallacy to suggest that. I don't find people requiring me to offer proof that there are no unicorns. I don't find people. Uh, Agitating for the fact that I have to prove that there's no Santa Claus, and that I have to have faith not to believe in unicorns or Santa Claus. So why would it would would any faith be necessary in in my suggesting that I don't believe in God? Uh, that 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 it's necessary to uh, to prove or, or or to have faith in. in in the non-existence of something where there's no proof uh, for the existence of that uh, entity.
2: This was me responding to Nicola Lee quoting Richard Dawkins saying 99.99% and I, I think what it requires is at least enough humility to say you know what you can't be a hundred percent sure, and so if even Richard Dawkins absolutely hates religion, thinks it's a terrible force for violence in the world, has to back off one one hundredth of a decibel. Well, you know, um, I, I'm I, first
4: of
1: all, let me. Christopher let me, Hitchens doesn't. Let me. Let me, <laughs> let me <laughs>
2: well said.
4: Could right. I? Could I just say that I? I am. I'm not saying I have proof that there is no God. Right. I think, I'm just saying. My my maiden point is: what exactly is it we're talking about? You're
2: right about the via negativa that Christian theologians, in concert with Jews and Muslims and Platonic philosophers, had said if you're talking about god better to say what god's not than what god is yeah. and each time you say god is not physical god does not have parts god does not in time god does not a great big white guy in the sky as he tends to come off in lots of sunday school classes um hopefully with each negation you come closer mm-hmm. to quote understanding a god who can't be understood
1: maybe god is nothing
2: well that's that's what yeah, i, that's, I that's think... the other that's the other thing
4: you you alluded to uh was that god is you—you you were suggesting that you had some something in in common uh, with uh, uh, with uh, your your friend there who is a disbeliever, right? In uh, in that you may have more in common with him about the nothing thing. That's the other right. thing, if God is exists exists, then he cannot be part of creating existence. So if if everything well, that exists, right, at some point had to, something either had to have always been or had to have come from nothing.
2: Sure, so. no, it, and it had to have come from nothing for Christians, of course. I mean, the claim I was making with Augustine is God is no thing. God's not an object, a piece of furniture in the world. God's the source from which things come that we can't understand, but I'm certainly happy with saying God is no thing.
0: Here's another answer. Do you recognize this one? comes in a neat formulation. What man is, God was. What God is, Man may become
4: well. That's a, that's the Mormon uh, belief, isn't it? Exactly.
2: <laughs> you know, uh, ancient Christians and men East- may
0: be, that that belief says that men living right. their lives fully and properly uh, may ultimately become God. And our God was once a human being, uh, who um, mm-hmm. but he came to rule this universe. It was mm-hmm. given to him by virtue of his perfection.
2: I mean, there are similarities there that are striking to Orthodox Christians believing all the things I said about God being transcendent and so on, and yet believing that uh, God became man so man might become God. Now, they mean something by that different than what Mormons believe, but they do speak about deification, about mm-hmm. humanity becoming divine in Christ um, for Orthodox Christians.
0: Sir, we thank you for the call.
2: Yeah,
0: Very interesting My contribution, and I'm uh, sorry I cut you off just a moment. Uh, but. Loads of people are still waiting to be heard, and we'll go directly to the next. On 591-7200, good evening. Good evening. Hello. Yes, hello.
5: Hey, how you doing tonight? I really appreciate you guys taking my call. All right. Um, race Catholic my entire life, um, college educated, and uh, the one thing I want to make, and I'm going to use the, the term um, modern religion, and... Uh, Sort of a play on words, and that is, religion today is too complicated for people. Uh, and, and and what I mean by that is that if you if you look at the re, the ritual of religion, it's 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 ingrained on on ideas that were developed many 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 years ago, and today's society uh, and I'm one of them who who look at these rituals and really kind of ask the question that at what what purpose does that have in my life today and and should somebody look at taking some of this religion and simplifying a little bit so that religion isn't so complicated
1: yeah you know that's uh, I was thinking about that recently like the fact that there's been no uh, you know new New Testament in in 2,000 years and uh, boy has the world changed and, um, you know, I, I I think that there's so much, uh, I don't know, because I'm not a biblical scholar, but there's so much in the Bible that no longer seems to make much sense.
5: Modernization of the practice is really what I'm going after, okay? Um, I, you know, I'm not saying necessarily writing a New Testament. I'm saying modernize how we, how we actually go about doing religion. You know, some people think you have to go to church to be religious. I'm not one that believes in it. I believe religion starts in your heart, and, and in, in your heart, and it, then it's practiced at home. And if you want to take it outside those bounds, you can. But again, modernize how it's practiced. But and, of course it's think... the
2: case that religious believers are always trying to do precisely what you're getting at. I mean, it never falls from the sky from 2,000 years ago into our laps. I mean, we're always actively interpreting the thing as we go along, mm-hmm. right? Well, uh, some, I... some of you are. <laughs> you are, James. and it interests me that one of the most one of the most passionate parts of your book, Nika, is when you talk about a Passover seder where you felt connected not to the idea of God, which you were worried about, but to Jews and their practices through time. So it actually cut, I think, perhaps in a different direction than what he's suggesting—a sort of gratitude for people who come before and and have borne on something that's precious.
1: Well, that certainly is a big part of, you know, the Jewish tradition, certainly, and even secular Jewish tradition, is connecting with with ancient. You know, ritual basically.
2: Preach. You should do it more often. (laughs)
1: It's a a, lot of fun.
0: Here's a rather startling question Uh, comes by email. As a Christian or as an atheist, what are the things that you would die for?
1: My children.
2: They say the 20th century and early 21st has been a great age of Christian martyrdom, that there have actually been more people who have suffered for their faith uh, in the last 100 years than in the first 100 years of the church. And religious believers have generally had to say that that they would die for their faith more than anything. So I suppose I should answer that
5: Mm -hmm.
2: for Jesus. I stick with my children. (laughs) I'd die for my kids, too.
0: (laughs) Which means that you would die for that which is close to you, but... Uh, but larger altruistic purpose doesn't really.
1: No, I think that would have to weigh in. The same right? way. Well, I mean, I think that's a really hard question. I, right. I mean, I think I, I don't want to die. You know, I mean, I think, frankly, that gets to uh, the heart of a lot of uh, religious belief: is fear of death. Oh, of course it does. And and I, I you know, frankly, I, yeah, no, I know. D- I I really would prefer not to have to die for any reason. Um, I'm. I mean, I'd like to be able to say I would die for my country, but um, I'm, I'm really, I'm too. I would be too afraid to do to to do that. What I would like to be able to say I would jump on the grenade, you know, in a in a crowded uh, marketplace, but I, I just don't know. I mean, I think I think what's closest to us is what, um, what comes to us most quickly. But if you're put in a situation, right, you, you just.
2: My wife is a terrific preacher, and the Sunday after 9-11, Romans 5 was the text where Paul talks about how, well, lots of people would try and die for a good man, but we wouldn't die for a bad person. And then it says, God expressed his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And my wife, preaching, started to weep and say, God died for a murderer, right? That's the God we know in Jesus that would die for his enemy, somebody loathsome, not just the buddies with the grenade, but somebody who's the lowest, namely us.
0: I had a dear friend who was... (laughs) a Jesuit priest, he was also my student at the University of Chicago, Uh, Ignacio Martín Baró, was one of the six Jesuits Mm. who was murdered in uh, San Salvador. Uh, He knew that it was coming. Mm. I I saw him only a few months before that event. He was back up in Chicago. And uh, at lunch I said, I hope you're taking care of yourself. And he said, whatever happens is in in God's hands. Mm. They were... uh, liberation theology priests, uh, very committed to their pursuit from the left of social justice in El Salvador. And uh, surely he was ready to die for his people, one might say, or for a general standard of Justice and, uh, and decency.
2: There's been much debate. There were some Christian missionaries in Turkey that were uh, killed, and fantastic accounts were spread on the internet of how much they were tortured before they were killed. And then there were secondary accounts that said, now they were killed, but they may not have been tortured, and how do you get at the truth? The trick is, martyrdom is volatile stuff, and it can immediately become a recipe for revenge, or it can become a recipe for emulation where you lay down your life and take no one else's.
0: Let us go back to the phones 591. 7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir.
6: Uh, some old time atheists listening to this program may, may remember a publication called The Truth Seeker, to, to which I eagerly subscribed at the age of 12, believing that the most important thing to do was to disprove the existence of God. As I lived my life further into my 40s and 50s, I, I found a need for something more than uh, the everyday ego provides and with the help of uh, zen priests and catholic nuns i discovered uh, spiritual uh, phenomena within myself and yet i did not uh, find any necessity to believe in uh, the abrahamic god Uh, and i think this uh, is uh, most uh, definitely illustrated in the history of mankind in primitive hunter-gatherer societies. There's a marvelous photograph in a book by Napoleon Chagnon about the Yanomami. This uh, Yanomamo, Yanomami Indian is standing in the clearing in the center of the village, absolutely transfixed mm. by something he's looking up at. And there's stuff coming out of his nose. He's taking something like cocaine. But he is seeing this, the, uh, one of the essential spirits in uh, that gave order to the tribe in what Mercia Eliade, uh, your late conferrer at the University of Chicago, referred to uh, as the eternal return, which, uh, uh, to use uh, modern religious language, gives the blessing to the tribe for the whole year. And then when that ceremony is over, many tribes take the masks that they have used in that ceremony, and they throw them into uh, dark huts, and they never look at them again. Uh, But the whole tribe according to the analysis of Durkheim, has been very much unified by this experience and uh, verified in, its, in, in all of its practices. In other words, religion in the primitive hunter-gatherer society was something in which everyone could participate and derive the benefits from, and the yeah. unity of the tribe was affirmed. Uh, the Abrahamic God is the God of conflict and division and, uh, uh, for most people, uh, no spiritual experience at all.
0: I'm very glad you mentioned Durkheim. One of the great books, in fact, I've taught it, in of course, in the psychology of religion that I've done on and off over the years, is The Elementary Forms of the Religious Life, yeah. um, in which he lays out just that thesis. You've described it very, uh, very uh, correctly, I would say. And I thank you for the call. You're welcome. Um, and uh, that, of course, again, points up the social function, the social right. utility of religious life.
2: I think also it is it is an awkward point for more rabid atheists, not at all Nicola Ali, I think, but to explain why four-fifths or five-sixths of the world's inhabitants believe in some sort of God um, and are wrong. I mean, it it immediately does put you in a vulnerable position to charges of arrogance, um, which aren't undone when the kind of rhetoric comes along in the books that have been written otherwise. So I think if you're going to approach this, it's your approach that's more salutary.
0: But how does it affect you? Uh putting this directly to you Jason mm-hmm. that uh, you see religion as an inevitable outcome of human experience and of human connection to the transcendent but uh, you are committed to one particular sure. representation of the the sacred story and you know perfectly well that there are a hundred other versions, sure. a thousand other versions sure. not only the great religions but tribal religions all over the world. Doesn't that
2: cause you to question
0: the literal truth right. uh, of of the christ story of christology
2: right questioning has to be part of a posture of faith for sure but i'm often struck when people will see the parallels with other religions and see it as sort of evidence for the falsity of of the one that one claims and i Mm -hmm. I say on the contrary gosh i would expect creatures of a good god created in the image of god even if they've never heard the gospel of jesus would get things right a lot of things right and that uh christian missionaries uh when we're on good behavior have not been surprised to see elements of what they already hold uh... being practiced by cultures they run into and when it works well is when the cultures get together and figure out how to follow jesus in a way that's appropriate to that new culture and the gospel itself is transformed changed, made fresh um, now often we've been on miserable behavior and precisely that moment and horrible things have happened but it doesn't have to go that way so i find this sort of proliferation of stories that are similar to be helpful and interesting and and um, not a point of threat mm-hmm.
0: I've been wondering, Nika, you've got two young kids.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How
0: old are they now?
1: Nine and 12.
0: You know, these matters all all often reverse over a generation or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've certainly <laughs> known kids raised by total secularists right. who had some contempt or condescension towards religion who discover religion mm-hmm. and discover orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do if that happens in your family? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
1: well <clears throat> I don't think it will happen with my son. Um, he is an avowed atheist um, and feels that science is the way to get to the answers that one might need and actually uh, can't wait to be old enough to read a lot of the books that I've purchased over the last year (laughs) he he looks at them and says when can I read when can I read Mr. Stenger's book when can I read Mr. Hitchens' book Um, my daughter is more of a questioner and possibly more of a seeker Um, you know I respect my children, and I respect their decision-making, um, and I would I would hope that dialogue remains a major part of the rela- relationship I have with them, so that I would understand, because understanding is really what it's all about for me.
0: Of course, conversely, Jason recognizes that these uh, skipping alt- and alternating generations they produce atheist That's kids right. out of a family of two
2: oh there's terrible stories about preachers kids especially double (laughs) preachers kids right they're always the first ones to head for the doors so you try and figure out some way to not shove it down their throats and uh, and of course you have to make space for them to be their own people but christians have always said it's not up to us we don't get to choose who believes and who doesn't it's finally up to god and so you try and take a certain sort of hope in that so you can rest at night
0: well this program has proved one thing discourse about religion is always fascinating Mm. and it has deeply interested our listeners. We thank them for some very fine questions and comments, and I am certainly grateful to Lali and Jason Biasi for joining us. One should note again quickly that the title of the new book by Lali is Nothing, Something to Believe in, published by Prometheus Books.